Hi, this is Adam, pastor of Faith Methodist Church. We're so glad to have you listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoy this morning sermon, which is titled, Dying to Self is the Way to Life. I invite you to turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 12, and then to Paul's second New Testament epistle to the Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians, we will start reading in verse uh, in chapter 2. We'll read just a few verses there in chapter 2, beginning at verse 14, and then we'll skip over to chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. The Word of Christ from the Gospel of John. And Jesus answered, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, loves his life, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from earth, will draw all people to myself. The Word of God from the Apostle Paul. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of knowing Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like many, peddlers of God's word, but men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what was written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring, with, bring us with you into his presence. 
for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Father, we thank you for your holy word. And we pray that you would bless the reading of your holy word to our hearts, to our minds, to the totality of our lives. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I mentioned a few weeks ago in a sermon on rest and Jesus' invitation to come to Him and find rest. I mentioned the name Jim Elliott and many of you know that name and are familiar with it. In 1955, Jim Elliott, for the last couple of years prior to that, had been preparing um, as a missionary to reach an unreached people group living in eastern Ecuador, the Aka Indians a people whose language he didn't speak, a people whose faces he had never seen, a people whose customs he was completely unaware of, other than the fact that he knew that they were known to be a brutal people who killed outsiders. And so he and a a few of his friends who had been in college together and had teamed together as missionaries, uh, one of whom was a pilot, began flying over uh, the village where the Alka Indians lived. And there was a body of water there and there was a, a beach uh, there and they began flying over just trying to make themselves familiar to the Alka Indians. And after some time, they began dropping, lowering down gifts to them, presents, trying to let them know very slowly, very carefully, but very intentionally that we come in peace and we are your friends. We are not trying to invade you. We are not trying to uh, to change you. We are simply coming to bring gifts to you. And that happened for quite some time. And I believe it was on January the 8th, just a couple of days after Epiphany in 1956, Jim Elliott and his friends decided to land there on that beach and to greet the Alka Indians and to meet them and get to know them so that they might reach them ultimately with the gospel of Jesus. And they were met by spears. They were all killed, though they were armed. They did not raise their arms to kill the Alka Indians. And back a few years prior in his journal, he had written the statement, He who gives what he cannot keep for that which he cannot lose is no fool. He worded it differently than that. I just butchered the quote, but... That's a paraphrase. That's a god paraphrase. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. I believe that's it. You know, the celebration of communion defines all of who we are. It defines everything about the church. This meal at this table, this bread, this cup, it defines who we are. It defines who we are. It defines what we do. It defines why we are who we are and why we do what we do. The celebration of communion, the Holy Eucharist, the great thanksgiving, the Lord's Supper, it defines us and it shapes us because the cross defines us and shapes us. 
And communion is about the cross. It's interesting that the symbol, the greatest, the, the most recognizable religious symbol in all the world is a cross. A symbol of death. A symbol of judgment. A symbol of guilt. A symbol of punishment. A symbol of shame and rejection and loneliness through abandonment. That symbol is what characterizes and shapes the life of the church. It shapes our worship. In fact, many Christians gather together every week to celebrate communion because of the cross of Jesus. Because only in Jesus saying, here is my body, here is my blood. Only in Jesus giving himself, memorialized in this holy meal, only in that is their life. Because dying to self is the way to life. That is an eternal principle. Because God the creator of all things, the author of this great story we call history. He is the one who writes the rules, and that is one of his primary rules. Dying to self is the way to life. That is what characterizes the inner life of the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each giving themselves to one another in holy, perfect love. Communion. And the cross of Jesus. It's what also shapes our ministry. It shapes all that we do. Not just our worshiping as a gathered people, but also our discipleship, our growth as a people. And it shapes what we do as we are sent out to go together as a people. As we minister within the body and as we minister through the body, outside the body, we are all that we do is to be shaped by the cross of Jesus. It is to be characterized by this giving of bread and wine. We live always in the shadow of the cross, nourished and formed by Jesus. In Paul's second New Testament epistle to the Corinthians, there's a lot of, there are a lot of quotes, a lot of uh, what we might call the quotable Paul is found in 2 Corinthians, but few of us often read this epistle. There's so much, so much beautiful language and beautiful imagery that Paul uses throughout uh, 2 Corinthians. And one of those images is this idea of, of life being shared, life being, um, being given from one to the other. This idea that, that, that we share in one another's life together. We share in each other's sufferings, in each other's triumphs. We share because we share in the grace of God. And that's how God's grace is at work. He begins this epistle, by talking about being our, a partaker in the sufferings of Jesus. That Jesus' sufferings overflow into His life. And through Paul, the Apostle of Christ, sharing in the sufferings of Christ, he is able to offer life, the life-giving gospel 
to others who are otherwise dying. Just as we share in the sufferings of Christ, Paul says we share also in the comfort that Christ offers. We rejoice together. We give thanks together because we are comforted together. And so we find joy in one another. Paul begins this very famous passage in chapter 2. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of knowing Him everywhere. He begins that passage with that image of a triumphal procession. And there really are a couple of things that might be behind Paul's use of that phrase in triumphal procession. The most obvious possibility is the, idea, is, is the image of a Roman procession. When Rome in the ancient world would conquer their enemies, they would do what we might do. They celebrated They put on a parade. The whole city would gather together out in the streets. And they would be celebrating. And in would come first the government officials. The mayors, governors, and whatnot. Those in authority. They would come. And they would be leading the front of the parade. Behind them would be trumpeters. To make a joyful noise. The sound of celebration. Pronouncing that a great victory has been won. Then would come the religious officials, the priests. And those priests would have incense. And you would have the aroma of, of, of celebration through incense. The burning of it as the priests followed in the trumpeters. And then would come wagons. Wagons filled with the loot, the spoils of war. What had been won, the gold, the silver, the, the, the fabrics. Whatever of value had been taken would, become, would be brought in in that procession of triumph on wagons. Then would come the victorious army, those who had fought the battle, those who had put their lives on the line, those who had survived the war. That victorious army would come. And then would come the general, the captain, the one who was responsible for winning the victory. He would come. He would come in a place of honor and then behind him would come the captives of the defeated army. And they would come, you can imagine, hanging their heads low, bound in chains, knowing that their their destiny at the end of that parade of triumphal procession, their destiny was to be slaughtered for the entertainment of the masses. When we read Paul's statement, Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. We might think of Christ as the general. He is the one who is responsible for the victory. He is the one who's led his army into battle. He is the one that has won the victory. And through the cross of Jesus, he has won the victory. But think of it. If he's leading us, who are we? We're not the victorious army up ahead. If He's leading us, we are 
the captive defeated behind him. We are the ones who are being brought in for slaughter. There's another possible meaning behind the text. That, and I think both of them together actually communicate what Paul is ambiguously trying to, to, to make us aware of. That other possible meaning behind the text is from a people before the Roman Empire, just slightly before the Roman Empire. And when they led a triumphal procession, the one who went at the front was the defeated king. They would keep that king whose armies they had defeated and they would have him lead their army and lead their procession. And he was being led or he was leading them as he walked to his own death. As he would be given as a sacrifice to the Etruscan gods. Either way, whatever it is that's on Paul's mind behind this idea of triumphal procession, the fact is that he recognizes that it is through the death, the self-giving death of Jesus that we have victory. And it is also through the fact that it is also through that that self-giving death of Christ that we ourselves are given life. But that life is not always one of triumph. It's not always one that seems glamorous. It's not one that always seems glorious. In fact, it might be one that seems wasted. It might be a life that seems that it's been spent worthlessly. But in Paul's mind is a simple statement, thanks be to God, I have lost the battle to Jesus. Thanks be to Him, He has given Himself for me so that I might have life. And he makes the statement that through us, the fragrance of what it is to know Jesus is spread everywhere. All those around can't help but smell it. And think of it. How do you get the fragrance of something? How do you get the fragrance of something? You get the fragrance of something by crushing it. By smashing it. Paul says we have this treasure. This treasure of knowing Jesus. This treasure of the good news that Christ is our victorious King through His humiliating, self-giving death. We have this treasure in jars of clay, jars that are breakable, jars that are fragile, jars that are earthen vessels. Dying to self is the way to life. It's the way to life for you. And it's the way to life for others. I was in fifth grade and I was still, it's kind of, I don't know if it's embarrassing to say or what, because my kids are still the same way, but I was in fifth grade and my mom was still clipping my toenails. I'll just lay it out there. And, um, and I always thought I could do maybe a better job 
uh, a better job than she could. And so uh, it was pretty customary for me, you know, it's toenail clipping night, I get my toenails clipped, I'd wait a little while, and then I'd sneak back into the bathroom, and I'd get the, the toenail clippers, and I would go and I'd try to finish the job that she, in my mind, had done kind of poorly. My mom babied me, I guess. But um, there was a reason she did that, because when it was, there was one time where I clipped my toenails, and when the time came for my toenails to be clipped again, I guess she expected there would be, you know, some long, you know, toenails that were snagging on everything. But there, and there were, except for on one toe. On one toe, there was not this long toenail that was getting caught on everything. There was a swollen red toe that had gotten infected, and I had an ingrown toenail, and it was on the big toe, and it hurt terribly. But in my pride, my, my, my fifth grade pride, I didn't want to tell my mom, so I kept this a secret. I had no clue what to do with the thing. I didn't want to touch it because it hurt when I would touch it. It was big and red and swollen. It was kind of hot when I felt the thing. I didn't want to touch the thing. I didn't want my mom to touch the thing. So she said, all right, it's time to get, uh, get your toenails clipped. Come on, Adam. And, of course, I had to do what had been inevitable all along and show my mom my toe, and she said, what in the world have you done? And so, of course, there was a moment of confession. Mom, I've been clipping my own toenails after you clipped them. And so she said, oh, my goodness, this is bad. This is bad. So, and it was, it was, it was pretty bad, uh, and it hurt really, really badly. So she takes me to a, an after-hours clinic there in Mississippi, and, um, and they say, wow, yeah, this is, this is pretty bad. We've got to get that get that thing cleaned up. So what they proceeded to do over the course of a couple of hours was give me shots in that toe to try to deaden it. And they started off with a couple of shots which hurt terribly because that toe, without being stabbed with with metal, was already hurting. I could hardly walk. It hurt so bad. So they gave a couple of shots they came back a few minutes later once the medicine should have taken, and they said, okay, we're going to poke the toe, and you let us know if you feel anything. Of course, they got near it. Oh! They said, you can still feel it? I said, yes, I can still feel it bad. They said, are you sure? And so they're like trying to sneak a couple of touches without letting me know, and sure enough, I'm wincing every time they get near the thing. Uh, they're trying to talk to me, distract me, and then they'd poke it, and it would hurt. And so they said, okay, well, we've got to give more medicine. So they came back in with a couple more shots, and they gave me a couple of more shots. And it hurt terribly. It was very painful. So this happens, this takes place for probably the better part of an hour. I eventually have seven shots in my toe. And on the seventh shot, after a few minutes, they said, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna poke it, and you let us know if you feel it. And I felt it. It hurt bad, but I couldn't take another shot. I mean, I, my, my toe was filled with medicine, and it didn't seem to be numbing it. So what they do is they tell my dad he has to hold me down and keep me on the table so that I'm not squirming and whatnot, and the whole time I'm squirming as they cut the toenail out of the infected skin and pull it out and dress it up, and I'm feeling every bit of it. It's probably numbed a little bit, but I could feel how badly it was. Or I could feel the process. 
I went for, for several months, I was having to soak my toe in Epsom salt and dress it and all sorts of stuff, and the toe never seemed to quite heal. Every time the toenail was growing back, it was, it was inf- still infected. And so after about a year of time, we finally found a doctor at, um, I think at St. Dominic's Hospital in Jackson that said, I know just what to do. He cauterized the edge of the toe, and that, that, that did hurt. It stung. This toe had been infected for about a year, and he cauterized it, and wouldn't you know it, my toe began to heal. Cauterizing. I looked, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a nurse or anything like that, but I, I was looking at what, what, what literally is cauterizing. It actually comes from a Greek word, and it is, it is about burning. It is about being branded. Etymologically, it has to do with something that is, that is having death imposed upon it. And it was through that cauterization that my toe began to heal, that life began to come back and be restored. Dying to self is the way to life for us, for you, but dying to self is also the way to life for others. I can't imagine the pain and the loss and the hurt and the possibly even regret that a lady like Elizabeth Elliot, Jim Elliot's wife, must have known. When Jim Elliot was killed in 1956, Elizabeth, his wife, and he had had a child 10 months prior. She has this 10-month-old daughter and she insists on continuing to be a missionary to the people of Ecuador. And specifically, she begins making, acting upon the plans that her husband and his friends had had to reach the Alka Indians. And so what does she do? She makes friends with people who live among them. A couple of ladies befriend her. She befriends a couple of ladies who are from the, the Alka tribe, this unreached people group, who had killed her husband and his friends. They begin to teach her the language. And she lives there in Ecuador for a couple of years until their 10-month-old daughter is now a three-year-old little girl. And what do they then do? They then move to live in the village with the Aka Indians who had killed that little baby girl's dad who had killed Elizabeth's husband. They lived with them for five years. Did five years of befriending. Five years of sharing the Gospel with them. And a significant portion of that tribe gave their lives to Jesus. Became Christians. Because of the investment of a lady like Elizabeth Elliot. A lady who embodied what it is to be crushed so that the aroma of Christ might be breathed out in her life. A lady who had lost much. A lady who had clearly come to the place of dying to self where she cared so much for the other person, for the person before her, for the the people who she was to meet, for the Alka Indians, for the people who had taken from her her greatest gift from God, her husband. 
She had so died to herself that she loved others more than she loved herself. Banks, who's away from us today in South Carolina, he'll be hearing this because he does our podcast for us. I heard uh, him say just a few days ago, he said someone the other day said they were having a bad day to give them words of encouragement. So his response was this, there are things that are worth dying for. And I thought, you know what? That's a pretty interesting word of encouragement. There are things that are worth dying for. That means that there are things in life that are bigger than us, that are worth giving ourselves for, that are worth being spent for. And I want to tell you that others are worth dying for. Dying for yourself, there's nothing beautiful in that. But dying for the sake of another, there's something beautiful and there's something redemptive in that. Paul said, death is at work in us so that life will be at work in you. Christ gave Himself the cross of Jesus. The celebration of Holy Communion is about the fact that God sent His Son to give His life for us so that we might have life through His own death. There is only one thing that can save a soul. And that is self-giving, other-oriented, holy love. Love that is so self-giving that it becomes incarnate. Is sacramental, it's mysterious, it's otherworldly. And it's expressed in humble servanthood. That sort of self-giving love, that love that gives of itself even unto death, it often looks like a tragic loss. Think of what might have been a regrettable waste Some despise that type of love. After all, it's not very self-affirming. It's not very self-asserting. In fact, some who call themselves Christian despise that sort of self-giving, other-oriented, holy love. But only because we don't always see reality clearly. See, we like being the light of the world, but as the light of the world, we like to be lights that are living out in the midst of light, not in the midst of darkness. The darkness is scary. We want to be light in a room filled with lights where everyone can see. But that's not the purpose of light. Light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot comprehend it or extinguish it or control it. And Jesus said, you are the light of the world. He did not say you are the light of the church. He said you are the light of the world. You are light that is intended to be lived out in darkness. See, we want to be lambs within the fold that are near other lambs, other sheep, others that are just like us. 
But Jesus says, I send you out as sheep among wolves to be devoured so that they might taste the blood of a lamb. We see a life that is given over to death, that is surrendered and crushed and broken and filled with the aroma of death. And we think, what a waste. You could have been rich. You could have been famous. You could have had it all. But Jesus tells us, unless a grain of wheat falls down to the ground and dies, it remains alone. And there is nothing in this life or in the life to come that is more hellish than loneliness and utter darkness. And so the way to life is given to us in the elements of Holy Communion. The way to life is always before us when our eyes are fixed upon the cross of Jesus. And He invites us to Himself to feed. And He invites us, as we have fed on Him in our hearts by faith, to go out where He is going. Because as the light of the world, He is always going out into the world. Out into the lives of others. Out into those who need to taste the blood. Dying to self is the way to life. Father, we pray that You would move among us through Your Holy Spirit. We pray that You would prepare our hearts for the celebration of this holy meal. We pray that as we lift our voices in song, that we would ultimately lift our hearts and lift all of our lives to You in complete surrender giving You complete control. Lord, we pray that You would bring us to the place of dying to ourselves, of caring more about others, caring more about one another, caring more about the people who live in our neighborhoods, who work um, with us, those who play ball with our kids. Lord, we pray that You would bring us to the place where we care more about them, about others, than we do about ourselves. Lord, help us to live lives that look like the life of Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen. Father Almighty, Creator and Sustainer of all things, who sent Your only begotten Son to redeem all things, You love us perfectly. You care for us faithfully. In Your Son Jesus, You have saved us completely. With Your Holy Spirit, please fill us entirely. You made us to know You and love You. Help us to know You more. Help us to love You more faithfully and completely. You've been good to us, and our hearts are filled with thanksgiving because of how merciful You are, how You've provided for us, and how You've watched over us. Thank You for being so good and so faithful to us. Lord, we want to know You more fully and we want to love You more completely. As we gather as Your people this morning and worship You in the name of Jesus, thank You for being with us and for ministering to us by Your Holy Spirit. 
Thank You for feeding us at Your holy table. Thank You, Jesus, for giving Your precious life for us. Holy Spirit, have Your way in our lives. Consume us with the holy love of the triune God. Father, Son, and Spirit, You are holy. You are faithful. You are good. We love You. Lord, we thank You for each other and the opportunity to gather this morning. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for how faithful You've been to us, for providing for us and meeting our needs, for protecting us and keeping us from harm. Lord, we thank You for Miss Margie and the opportunity to serve her and the other ladies and customers on our Meals on Wheels route. Lord, we thank You for providing for Miss Emily to be able to go to Japan just within the next couple of weeks or so. Lord, we thank You for meeting every need that she has and helping her to get completely funded. We pray Your blessings on her and that You would would send her with love of people who are back home praying for her and giving toward her. Lord, we come to You as people with needs, with a variety of needs, a variety of, of ways in which we desperately need You. We pray that You would meet every need that we have, that You would take our burdens upon Yourself. Help us as Your people to surrender them to You. Lord, we lift up Heather and Ryan and Mason to You. We pray that You would watch over them as they travel. Lord, be with them. Keep them safe and out of harm's way. Lord, we pray for her grandfather. We pray that You would be with him as he fights cancer. We pray that You would strengthen his body that You would strengthen His mind. And Lord, surround Him by people like Heather and Ryan and Mason who love Him and care for Him. It can be a source of comfort for Him. Lord, we lift up Boyd to You. We pray that You would be with him as he continues to search for a job. We pray that You would open the right door for him, that You would open it quickly. Lord, we lift up AJ to You and we pray that You would be with his job situation. Lord, we pray that You would bless him beyond what he can imagine. Lord, we lift up our friend Banks to You. We thank You so much for him and all that he does for us as a congregation. Lord, we miss him when he's gone. We pray that You would be with him as he travels. Keep him safe. Lord, as we are part of the Association of Independent Methodists and as You've put upon the hearts of those that lead the association to to plant churches and specifically within these next couple of years to plant a church uh, in Athens, Alabama, we pray that You would prepare the ground there that You would raise up those who would be laborers in that harvest. And Lord, we pray that You would help us as an association to faithfully pray, to faithfully give, to faithfully uh, learn and, and support in all ways that we are able. Lord, we are Yours. And we pray that as we prepare to leave this sanctuary, that You would send us as light in the darkness. Lord, send us as those who have died to themselves so that You might be lifted up and Your life might be given to others. O God, before the passion of Your only begotten Son, You revealed His glory upon the holy mountain. Grant to us that we, behold, beholding by faith, the light of His countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross, and may be changed into His likeness from glory to glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with You and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever, we pray. Amen.
shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you behold darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you may his glory be seen in your life as you go in the blessing of the Father Son and Holy Spirit amen thank you for listening to our podcast please check out our website at faithmethodistchurch.org.